Hey, this is Dave DeCamp from Antiwar.com, and this is Antiwar News for Thursday, September 8th, 2022. We'll get right into it here. The first story at the top of Antiwar.com, things aren't looking good for the Iran nuclear deal. According to a report from Israeli media, the U.S. has conveyed to Israel that the nuclear deal with Iran is off the table for now. This is according to the Israeli news website Zaman Yisrael. That media outlet in this report said that it has learned that a new nuclear deal between the U.S. and Iran is off the table and will not be signed in the foreseeable future. So the report from Zaman Yisrael, which is the Hebrew language sister site of the Times of Israel, which is an outlet I use a lot, very pro-Israeli, but they, they put out a lot of information. Um, But the report, it didn't cite any sources, but it said that the message had been conveyed to Israeli Prime Minister Yair Lapid in recent conversations with President Biden and other U.S. officials. Prospects for a revival of the nuclear deal known as the JCPOA seemed unlikely after the U.S. slammed Iran's latest response in the ongoing negotiations as not encouraging and moving backwards covered that a lot. And then we have also saw the EU's foreign policy chief, Joseph Burrell, who has kind of spearheaded these negotiations, this recent effort to revive the deal as Europe's facing this energy crisis. He said that he thinks the deal is in danger, so things aren't looking good. So I think that this report is probably pretty accurate, that this is what the U.S. has been conveying to Israel. And they've had a lot of conversations. Bennett and Biden spoke on the phone last week. And uh, David Barnia, who is the head of Mossad, the Israeli spy agency, he's in Washington right now, and they've been in Benny Gantz, the Israeli defense minister. He was there. So it's just been constant communication between the U.S. and Israel on this issue, which isn't a good sign for the deal in the first place, because we know Israel is very opposed to it. And it's hard to, to believe that Biden would stand up to Israel on this issue. And Lapid, uh, the Israeli prime minister, he's expected to play up this, just the fact that he averted a new Iran deal by pressuring the U.S. as part of his election campaign. Israel's elections will be held on November 1st, and former prime minister Benjamin Netanyahu is a contender. And Lapid has criticized Netanyahu's confrontational approach to the Biden, uh, sorry, to the Obama administration when the JCPOA was first negotiated in 2015. You know, he's saying that Netanyahu was super confrontational publicly and that that uh, strategy left Israel in the dark as the U.S. negotiated the JCPOA. But the current Israeli government has also, you know, been said some pretty uh, confrontational things publicly saying that, you know, if the U.S. doesn't walk away from the negotiations, that it shows weakness and stuff like that. But I guess maybe not as you know uh, harsh as Netanyahu was. All right, so the next one, this is just another bad sign for the Iran nuclear deal talks. This is from Jason Ditz. The IAEA falsely hints that Iran, Iran's nuclear program isn't peaceful. So the IAEA issued a statement on... Wednesday that said they can't assure that Iran's nuclear program is entirely peaceful, which is just kind of a strange thing to say, uh, because, you know, that hints, as Jason puts it, it it hints that it might be something more nefarious than it is. Um, But 
in reality, you know, there's still no indication that Iran has taken any steps to uh, toward building a nuclear weapon. Their uranium stockpile, this is really the evidence that the IAEA put forward was that their uranium stockpile is growing, but none of none of it is being used for any military purposes. And a big, you know, fact is that Iran still hasn't enriched any uranium at the 90% level needed for weapons grade. They've enriched some at, at 60%, but most is under 20%. And so really, this uranium stockpile that they have, it, it can't be used to make a weapon, so it doesn't really matter how much they have stockpiled. And then, of course, if that this is the concern, uh, then the JCPOA will significantly reduce that uranium stockpile. And that agreement limits their uranium enrichment to 3.67%, which is very low. Um, so again, you know, if people, you know, the IAEA, I guess they, they do say that they want the JCPOA to be revived, but all the Iran hawks and stuff that picked up on this statement from the IAEA, if their real concern was this stockpile of uranium and the enrichment levels, then they should be the biggest proponents of the JCPOA. All right, so the next one here, this is concerning. Uh, Ukraine's top general warns that a limited nuclear war cannot be ruled out. So this is General Valery Zalushny. He is the commander-in-chief of Ukraine's armed forces. He warned on Wednesday that it couldn't be ruled out that the war in Ukraine could turn into a limited nuclear conflict that could draw in other countries and potentially spark World War III. So Lushny made the warning in an op-ed published by the Ukrainian state news agency Ukraininform, and that was co-authored by Ukrainian lawmaker Mikhailo Zabrodsky. So the pair warned that Moscow could use tactical nuclear weapons in Ukraine, although Russian leaders have insisted that they would only use nuclear weapons if Russia's existence was threatened. We've seen that statement a lot from Russian officials. Uh, but the article reads, quote, it is also impossible to completely rule out the possibility of the direct involvement of the world's leading countries in a limited nuclear conflict in which the prospect of World War III is already directly visible, end quote. The article says that, quote, any attempts at practical steps towards the use of tactical nuclear weapons must be stopped using the entire arsenal of means at the disposal of the countries of the world, end quote. So I guess he's saying that if Russia makes any steps towards using a tactical nuke, then the the other countries like the U.S. should uh, use a nuclear weapon against Russia. So we hear a lot about these tactical nuclear warheads, and they have smaller yields, nuclear yields, than strategic nuclear weapons, which are much bigger. The U.S. arsenal of tactical nuclear warheads ranges between 0.3 kilotons and 170 kilotons, and that's the nuclear yield. And just uh, for reference, the yield of the bomb that the U.S. dropped on Hiroshima was 15 kilotons. So when you look at strategic nuclear weapons that can go all the way up to 800 kilotons and maybe even higher, I'm not um, too sure how far high they can go, but... When it comes to these strategic weapons, a lot of them are the size of the ones that were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. The one dropped on Nagasaki was 21 kilotons. They also have ones that are smaller, but 
this idea of a limited nuclear conflict, uh, you know, experts on nuclear weapons argue that it's misguided because once a nuclear exchange begins, it could just so easily and quickly spiral out of control. And I quoted Daryl Kimball. He's the executive director of the Arms Control Association. He wrote on this issue in May 2022 for Arms Control Today. His was a response to people in Washington that want the U.S. to develop a bigger stockpile of strategic, uh, sorry, of tactical nuclear warheads because of this idea that they could engage in a war against Russia with these smaller nukes. And this is a quote from Kimball. He said, quote, theories that nuclear war can be limited are extremely dangerous and ignore the unimaginable human suffering nuclear detonations would produce. In practice, one nuclear weapons, once nuclear weapons are used by nuclear armed advers adversaries, there is no guarantee the conflict would not quickly escalate to a catastrophic exchange in involving the thousands of long range strategic nuclear weapons nuclear weapons in the U.S. and Russian arsenals, end quote. So it's concerning to see, you know, the top, the leader of the Ukrainian armed forces warning that the op-ed was mostly about Ukraine uh, looking to the future and what their war fighting strategy is going to be in 2023 for next year. And it's pretty concerning to see him saying that we can't rule out the possibility that there's going to be a nuclear war. Um because you know, this is the guy that is leading Ukraine's war effort, making this warning. So um, it's just a little unsettling, I would say. <laughs> um, I just want to take a moment to mention our sponsor, which is the book, How the West Brought the War to Ukraine by Benjamin Ablo. And it's a great, short, concise summary of the steps that the U.S. and NATO took from the Cold War throughout the 90s into the 2000s that uh, led to the situation that played a major role in sparking the war that we're seeing today. And really, there's not anything else like it. I haven't seen any other books since this current war started back in February like this, really summarizing how the West shares a big responsibility for what's happening today. And it's endorsed by a lot of great people, Noam Chomsky, Chaz Freeman, Douglas McGregor, John Mersheimer, Jack Matlock. Uh, it's a pretty serious lineup, so people should check it out. You can buy it in the show notes if you're listening on the podcast, or it's in the description of the YouTube and Odyssey videos. Okay, so back to the news here. The next one, uh, this is from Kelly Vlahos at, the, at Responsible Statecraft. Congress wants crack at Biden's new $13.7 billion Ukraine aid package. So this is just um, saying that on Friday, this past Friday, before Labor Day weekend, the Biden administration said that it wanted a new aid package for Ukraine totaling $13.7 as the $40 billion that was signed by President Biden in May is running out. Um, so now Kelly covers just how a lot of members of Congress are saying that they want to, they're asking the Secretary of Defense for a rundown of exactly what this aid will be. Most of it is going to be in military aid for Ukraine, and there's about $2 billion that's also going to go toward, you know, sort of the U.S.'s economic uh, energy situation as a result of the war. $1.5 is going to go toward buying uranium because the U.S. 
wants to ban Russian uranium, they're still buying it. And then there's a 500 million that would go toward uh, the strategic oil reserve, I guess, replenishing it or something like that, because they've released a lot of that uh, since Russia invaded and the U.S. banned the import of Russian oil. Um, So we'll see uh, exactly what this package turns into. And there's a good chance that Congress is going to raise it, is going to increase the amount, I would say. So she said that Inhofe said that um, is a little concerned that there's not more money. Um, So we could expect this amount to increase. The Biden administration, that $40 billion aid package, that was originally $33 billion, I think. It was in the low 30s. That's what the Biden administration asked Congress for. And Congress upped it to 40. And they, they seem to do that all the time now with the military budget and everything. So expect an increase on that. There's another one from Responsible Statecraft from Connor Eccles. And it is titled, The U.S. Military Trained Ukrainians Days Before They Sank Two Russian Ships. U.S.-trained Ukrainian soldiers sank two Russian ships in June, according to Bill LaPlante. He's the Pentagon's top acquisitions official. The incident came just months, just two months after Washington gave Ukraine intelligence that the U.S. said helped sink the Moskva, which was Russia's the, the flag ship of Russia's Black Sea fleet. And that was pretty... Uh, this is just an example of how intimately involved the u.s is in this war and people still don't want to use it uh use the term proxy war to explain what the u.s is is doing here um it says that washington trained the combatants on how to use the the harpoon anti-ship missiles over memorial day weekend earlier this year the next week two russian ships were sunk uh laplante said this is in an interview with defense news So it's just another example of how closely involved the U.S. is in the war. And if you're in Moscow, it's hard to say that you're not fighting a war with the U.S. Okay, more of similar stuff here. Ukraine claims responsibility for recent Crimea attacks. So this is also from that op-ed by Ukraine's commander-in-chief, Valery Zelushny, and the Ukrainian lawmaker that uh, they co-authored this op-ed and in it for the first time Ukraine it was the first time Ukrainian official claimed responsibility for recent attacks we saw inside Crimea so the op-ed it focused on Ukraine's future war efforts and the two Ukrainian officials said that part of Russia's strategy has been that they distanced their citizens from the fighting so they don't painfully perceive losses is how they put it so they pointed to these recent strikes in Crimea as an example of bringing the fight closer to the Russians, to Russian Russian civilians, I guess. Um, The op-ed said, quote, we are talking about a series of successful rocket strikes against the enemy's Crimean air bases. First of all, the Saki airfield, end quote. So the Saki airfield on August 9th, there is a pretty major explosion that uh, destroyed several Russian warplanes, and they described it as a combined strike. They didn't detail it any further from there, say what kind of weapons that they used or anything. Um, For their part, Russia has claimed that that incident was the result of an accident, but Moscow blamed on August 16th, there was an attack 
on a Russian ammunition depot in northern Crimea, and Russia blamed that on sabotage. So there it seemed like they admitted it was an attack. And again, until now, Ukraine has not officially claimed responsibility for these attacks. And the U.S. has voiced its approval for Ukrainian attacks on Crimea. And Russia has controlled Crimea since 2014. The Biden administration has said it doesn't want Ukraine using U.S.-provided weapons on Russian territory. But Crimea is an exception since Washington and Kiev don't recognize it as Russian. All right, the next one here, EU to propose price cap on Russian gas despite warning from Putin. So the EU on Wednesday, they're saying that they're going to explore a price cap on Russian gas. This comes as they're bracing for a harsh winter. Energy prices have skyrocketed. And Putin on Wednesday, he said if they try to do this price cap, then we're not going to be supplying them with gas. We're not going to be supplying them with any energy. Uh, they would cut them off completely. But still, the EU says that they're exploring it, which is really unbelievable because they're just not in the position to, to do this. They, they're taking all these measures to prepare, brace for the winter. They're talking about making major electricity cuts during peak hours and stuff, and there's going to be rationing in some countries. And just the fact that they're still going for this price cap, I just don't understand it because the sanctions has backfired on Europe so badly and and it's clear russia would take the economic hit to them of losing the gas sales to europe they're pretty confident that they have will find other markets um so it just doesn't seems pretty short-sighted to me and then this is similar this is from uh, kyle anzalone and connor freeman at the libertarian institute the white house they're calling on india and china to implement the g7 price cap which would be a price cap on Russian oil that's supposed to take effect in December. And again, just seems very short-sighted because Russia said that it would retaliate. And if Russia retaliates by not selling any oil to the countries that try to impose the price cap and they cut production, that could really send global oil prices just skyrocketing. So it just seems like more short-sighted policy that's just going to snap back and, and hurt the West. Baltic nations, this is the next article. The Baltic nations agree on a visa ban for most Russian citizens by mid-September. So the Baltic states of Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia agreed Wednesday to coordinate a ban that would restrict border crossings for the majority of Russian citizens, which they plan to implement by mid-September. Under the ban, the three Baltic nations would not allow Russians with a type of visa that is a it's a short stay visa known as the Schengen visa for the EU. And it allows if you get this visa, then you could, you know, pretty much travel throughout the entire EU. And under this ban, Russians won't be able to enter with it. There will be some exemptions. They're still working out the details, but it looks like the exemptions will be pretty limited to what they said were diplomatic and humanitarian work and also for family visits because um, a lot of Russians have family in the Baltic states and stuff. Um, but so they took this step after the EU couldn't agree on a Russian visa ban. The Baltic states wanted a blanket ban from the entire EU. But France and Germany were against it, so they couldn't get that done. And Finland shares an over 800-mile border with Russia. They announced that they will cut the number of visas issued to Russians by 90%. So they're just, you know, drastically reducing the number of visas that they're going to issue to Russians. And this comes after 
Zelensky, the Ukrainian president, he called on Western nations to ban all Russian tourists and travelers. And when he made the call, he said that the whole population of Russia, the whole population of Russia was responsible for the war and that they should all be punished for it. And you just imagine if that standard was applied to Americans. Next one, man, we got a lot of news today. The latest U.S. congressional delegation arrives in Taiwan. So another delegation, another U.S. delegation arrived in Taiwan on Wednesday as the parade of U.S. officials visiting the island continues despite warnings and unprecedented military exercises from Beijing. So this is a bipartisan group of House lawmakers, eight altogether, which is pretty big delegation. It's being led by Representative Stephanie Murphy. She is a Democrat from Florida. This visit is the sixth time that a U.S. delegation traveled to the island since the beginning of August when House Speaker Nancy Pelosi made the trip. Murphy is joined in Taiwan by fellow Democrat Rep. Kaili, Kaili, if I said that right, she's from Hawaii, and Republican Representative Scott Franklin of Florida, Kat, Kat Kamek, also of Florida, also of Florida, sorry, Joe Wilson of South Carolina, Andy Barr of Kentucky, Daryl Issa of California, and Claudia Tenney of New York. According to the South China Morning Post, unlike the previous U.S. delegations, Murphy's group did not travel to Taiwan on a military plane. They arrived on a commercial flight from South Korea. So that was also kind of a new thing that just started a few years ago, the congressional delegations arriving to Taiwan on a military plane. That was seen as a little more provocative toward Beijing. And these delegations used to be much more rare. I mean, this is unprecedented, um, at least as for as long as I've been paying attention to this for the past few years. I've never seen anything like this, and I doubt that there's been this many series of U.S. delegations to Taiwan in such a short amount of time. The delegation is sure to anger Beijing since it views the U.S. visits to Taiwan as Washington moving away from the one China policy. In response to Pelosi, who was the first House Speaker to visit Taiwan since 1997, China launched its largest ever military exercises around the island, and Beijing has kept up the military pressure as the U.S. delegations continue. So here's a an example of what this military pressure is, China previously rarely crossed the median line, which is an unofficial barrier that separates the Taiwan Strait. But since Pelosi's visit, that has changed. According to Japan Times, China flew 302 sorties across the median line in August. 302. Between 1954 and August 2020, China flew across this line only four times. So that's a pretty significant increase, I would say. So that's between 1954 and August 2020. Four times Chinese planes flew across that line. Now between September 2020 and the time that Pelosi visited, it increased a little bit. Chinese warplanes made the flight 23 times. So that's almost two years, 23 times, month of August, 302 times. No, I like numbers like this because you can clearly see how things have changed. And that uptick of flights 
between September 2020 and Pelosi's visit, that was in response to the Trump administration sending the highest level cabinet officials to Taiwan since Washington severed diplomatic relations with Taipei in 1979. In August 2020, Trump Trump sent Alex Azar to Taiwan, who was his health secretary, highest level a cabinet official to go to Taiwan since 1979. The following month, he sent Alex, oh, excuse me, he sent Keith Crack, who is the Undersecretary of State for Economics. And that's when we started to see more Chinese flights in the region and the media that got a lot of media attention, but always, you always lose this context in the mainstream media that it was very clearly a response to the U.S. steps to increase diplomatic relations with Taiwan. All right, so the last one here, this is from Kyle Anzalone at the Libertarian Institute. Israel firmly rebukes White House's request to review policies after death of American journalists. So this is uh, Lapid again. He issued a stern response to a request from the Biden administration. So after uh, Shireen Abu Ekla, the Palestinian-American journalist that was killed by Israeli forces, This past May, Israel recently acknowledged that she was probably killed by Israeli soldiers. That's what Israel said, that it was a high possibility or something like that. But it's very clear from investigation after investigation that Israeli soldiers did kill her. Um, But that was it. They closed the probe and there wasn't there's not any kind of follow up or no accountability. So the U.S. asked Israel to review its rules of engagement and. Lapid fired back and said, quote, no one will dictate our rule, our rules of engagement to us, end quote. So that's it. Um, End of story, I guess. (laughs) The Israelis aren't going to change anything. And I'm sure that the U.S. isn't really going to press this issue. Now, uh, again, the Israelis said high probability that an IDF soldier killed her uh, by accident. But there is a Again, a lot of investigations and including mainstream media outlets that were that are usually very pro-Israel, including CNN. And the CNN report said that it was likely a targeted killing because Shireen Abu Ekla, she was standing with another journalist with a vest that said press, with a body uh, bulletproof vest that said press, and they shot her and killed her. And there wasn't uh, a gunfight going on. They, they framed it as they were returning fire and they thought they were Palestinian gunmen, but there was no firefight going on according to these other investigations. So that's it. Palestinian American journalists gunned down and the Biden administration probably isn't going to do anything about it. Um, But that's it for the news for today. That was a lot of stuff. Uh, I hope you all stuck with me there. Uh, You could contact the show news at antiwar.com. Support the show antiwar.com slash donate buy some merch you'll find the link down below i will be back tomorrow with some more news thanks for listening